Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello, welcome in everyone. It's uh, week two of Matthew as we continue in our Bible in a year series. I was thinking we're calling it Bible in a year, but we're not going to make, or the New Testament year, but we're not going to make it New Testament year. But I figured that's okay because like, is a thousand years always a thousand years? Right. Like, <laughs> so it's, it, it, this is just a biblical year. And it's it like be a, a preacher saying, I'm just going to go for a few more minutes. Yeah. Right. It's a lie. <laughs> it's not a lie. Yeah. A little longer. Yeah, when I was teaching drum and bugle corps, that was the thing, because you always practice and you do it again. And, and that was the thing I was told early on as an instructor, like never say one more time because you could be lying. So just say, do it again. <laughs> and that might be the last time. Anyway, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get into week two of the Matthew series. Let's actually do a quick review, though, from last week. So some of the things we talked about last week uh, as we gave an overview of Matthew, that you know, the beginning chapter actually matters with that genealogy. Uh, that, that was actually very significant. And it includes women, which is odd yeah. because that's not something that you would give preference to in the ancient world, right? Yeah. And we left that out of our discussion last week. So we want to begin by noting that also that uh, not only was the genealogy is set up so that it's telling the story of Israel being lived out by Jesus. So from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus. So the way Matthew structures it, and there's 14 generations in each one of those blocks. But all of a sudden, you come across these women. And what's intriguing about the women is, for example, it says, referring to Bathsheba, it doesn't say Bathsheba. It says, the David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Mm -hmm. Like, wait Mm -hmm. a minute. We all know who that is. Mm -hmm. But yet, it's bringing out the sin of David. Uh, You also have the fact that you have Tamar, who's a Canaanite. Rahab's a Canaanite Mm -hmm. from Jericho. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a lot of really strong evidence that Rahab was actually a prostitute. That, so. That's what I was going to say. Every time I see yeah. Rahab in there, it's like, and man, she was a pro- probably a prostitute. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, it's amazing. I was gonna, even, even going to back to the Uriah. I mean, do you think there's a reason why you wouldn't include Bathsheba outside of saying, Hey, let's just, let's not whitewash this thing. And is it just a way to even pay tribute to Uriah or why would even, why would that name be in there? I think what's in, I think it's there because it's paying tribute to, to Uriah and showing the Gentile influence of the genealogy. So Bathsheba is not an Israelite, mm. but you don't know that unless you realize that her husband is Uriah the Hittite. Got so it. That's why Tamar is a Canaanite, Rahab's a Canaanite, Ruth's a Moabite, Bathsheba's married to a Hittite. So, oh, it's, it's this Gentileness element of these women. Mm-hmm. And I mean, all this goes back to Genesis 12 and Abraham, right? Like, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to the world. Right. And (laughs) the nations were already part of this. Of course, they're part of the the genealogy of of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. So along with this genealogy, which is very important, and and I'm thinking about now, it's like it's it's February the second, the day we're recording this, like how many people have stopped their year in a read the Bible in a year plan because they might be like in numbers or something or where there's just these long lists of things. Yeah. And we just blow through these lists where it's like, no, these are actually important. And some of them more important than others. Yeah. And this, the Matthew one is very important. Uh, yeah, it is. You might not read it still, but as long as you get out what we said, you know, Hey, yeah. this is what it's there for. Yeah. Might not be your life verse, but it's definitely yeah. an important passage. So we also have this, this concept of bookmarking or what you would call inclusio uh, that happens in the book where, the book begins and ends with God always being with us, whether it's in chapter one with, uh, Hey, you're going to name, you're going to have the son and you're going to name Emmanuel. So they named him Jesus, which, <laughs> yeah. which didn't make sense. And then Jesus finishes as he goes up and gives the great commission by saying, Hey, uh, you know, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Yeah. When we finished that last week, it was kind of the way we finished the, the episode. I thought we kind of left that hanging. I, I think we kind of, if you're listening to it, you thought, oh, that was that was really cool. That's a, it's a complete story, but there's so much more to it. And so mm-hmm. what I wanted to bring up for this week's episode is just a reminder of how central this is to the biblical story. This is this is the essence of the entire biblical story. So as we go to the gospels, as we go to the letters of, of the New Testament, as we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to continuously be reminding ourselves of this fact that the story of the scriptures is that God desires to dwell with his people mm-hmm. and that Jesus is the beginning of that fulfillment. And that's why his name was Emmanuel. But when he dies, he doesn't like simply go away and say, well, I'll come back someday. It's like, no, obviously the gospel of John's going to really bring this out. Mm-hmm. 
I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and he'll be with you always also. So I'll be with you always through the personal Holy Spirit. And then we're going to see this continuing to flush out in the New Testament. So wait, stand by for more details uh, pertaining to this, this issue. So, yep. There you go. Nice commercial there. So we also discussed that Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And, right. and that's just, that's a central theme to anything that we should read in, in the Bible. I, I just taught a Sunday school class that I started this past Sunday at my own church. And it's an end times eschatology class. And that's one of the first points we make is the whole thing is about Jesus, not yeah. just in theory in a, in a bumper sticker kind of way, but this is literally the point of, of the story. Jesus teaches us how to read the story about him. The New Testament writers teach us how to read the story about him. And so we need to be good Bible readers and, and do the same. Yeah. And this really comes out with uh, Jace Broadhurst's episode. He was starting to talk about this. I'm like, yeah, we're going to cover this when we get to Matthew. What we're not saying is, is that there's an isolated verse here, Isaiah 7, mm -hmm. 14. There's an isolated verse over there and, and they're all about Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is in the whole story because we can find this verse here and this verse here and this verse here. What we're saying actually is the entire story is actually about Jesus. And so Matthew tells the story in this manner. So let's kind of walk through the first several chapters of, of the gospel of Matthew to see how this flushes out. And some of these things are going to go, well, I don't know about that point. But when you see the whole of mm -hmm. like, yeah, actually it makes sense because that, that's clearly what he's doing. The gospel of Matthew begins, of course, after the genealogy with an angel appearing to Joseph saying, hey, you know, you're going to have this child and leave where you're at and go to Bethlehem. So obviously Joseph and Mary are up in Nazareth, as far as we know, up in the Galilee and they come south to Bethlehem. Well, that reminds of Abraham. Abraham, leave the land where you're at and go to the place that I will show you, which by the way, is a massively significant thing that Abraham's leaving everything he has. Mm -hmm. You just don't do that. You don't leave ancestral lands and ancestral families and everything else. Listening to a podcast today or mentioning the fact that when Abraham goes to get a son for uh, a wife for Isaac, Okay. Hey, go back to my family. He takes a servant, go back to my family and find a wife for my son, Isaac, and don't let Isaac stay there hmm. uh, because it would have been so compelling for Isaac to have, Hey, mm -hmm. I've got uncles and aunts and, and mm -hmm. nephews or, and cousins. I want to stay here. Like, no, bring him back here. So Abraham's called to leave the land. He's at, and Abraham's up North, up in Syria. And he comes to Hebron, which is just South of Bethlehem. So the story of Abraham and Joseph seem to be paralleling one another coming from the North and then coming down to the South. And then Joseph and Mary, eventually leave in Matthew chapter two to go to Egypt. And the reason why they go to Egypt, of course, is because Herod's going to kill all the children. Well, remember Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, comes through and they lead the Israelites off into Egypt. The Israelites go off in Egypt. Jesus goes off in Egypt. And what happens there? Well, Pharaoh is killing all the children of the Israelites. And Herod is killing all the children of the Israelites. And obviously, Herod's not really killing all the children. It's only the ones in Bethlehem. But Herod is being portrayed as this new Pharaoh-like creature. They come from the north, they travel down to the south, they eventually escape off into Egypt and because a king or a ruler is killing all the children of Israel. Then they leave Egypt, and of course, the Israelites leave Egypt through the, through the Exodus with Moses. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, they're baptized mm -hmm. in, the sea, in the Red Sea. Now, you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense because they, they didn't even get wet. The water's on both sides. Like uh, maybe some ocean spray got them, whatever. <laughs> but the point is, Paul says they were baptized in the sea. Well, Jesus leaves Egypt and what happens? He's baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Then the Israelites go off into the wilderness for 40 years. After Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days. And what happens? They're being tempted by the devil. This is where the story changes because the Israelites were not faithful in the wilderness as Adam wasn't faithful. So the Israelites were not faithful, but Jesus actually is faithful in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And then after the wilderness time or during the wilderness time, Moses goes up on a mountainside, Mount Sinai, and gets the law. Well, Matthew chapter five, Jesus goes up on a mountainside and gets the law. So, and if you look at what's happening now, and that's this Matthew one, Joseph and Mary go down to Bethlehem. Matthew two, they leave for Egypt. Matthew two, Herod's trying to kill all the children. Matthew chapter three, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Matthew chapter four, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Matthew chapter five, Jesus goes up on a mountainside. It's the story of Israel being relived or retold. Mm -hmm. Technically, it's actually, the word actually retold, but re being retold or relived by Jesus. Now, when Moses goes up on, a, on the mountainside and gets the law, the law comes in the forms of blessings and curses. And so you see, blessed, blessed, blessed are those, you know, if you do this, you'll be blessed. We talked about this last week in Leviticus 26. If you do these things, you're going to be blessed. And then I'll be your God and you'll be my people. 
And then, of course, the law that Moses gets says, and if you don't do these things, you'll be cursed. When you get to Matthew 5, Jesus begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. The curses don't actually occur until Matthew chapter 23. But nonetheless, mm -hmm. there's these great parallels uh, between the, the life of Moses and the life of the life of the Israelites and the life of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And even to that first Corinthians 10 point, or after leaving Egypt, the, the people were baptized in the Jordan, right? First Corinthians 10 is where Jesus, yeah. uh, Paul also talks about how Jesus was the rock that gave water yes. yeah. uh, to right. the people in the land. Yeah. Um, cool. So let's talk about baptism because baptism is a really strange thing to ascribe to Jesus. I even had a, a someone in my office today, we were talking and we were talking about baptism and they were explaining to me why Jesus was baptized and, and it's, it's a model for us, right? This yeah, is the reason that, why that's the common answer, isn't it? It, it is. Yeah. And it, like, well, he didn't have to repent. He just did it as something that we would want to do, which is strange. Cause if that was the case, how come you don't see any new Testament writers appealing to that? Why didn't Paul yeah. appeal to that when he yeah. discussed get baptized? Cause Jesus yeah. was, yeah. So yeah. why did Jesus get baptized? Yeah. It's just even more problematic if you look at it in Luke's gospel, because it says explicitly that John the Baptist was baptizing with the baptism of repentance for the mm -hmm. forgiveness of sins. In Matthew's gospel, it says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you're coming forward to get baptized as an act of repentance. Either way, you still have this issue of why is Jesus being baptized? Because he has nothing to repent for. Right? And the answer is because he's repenting for the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm for the restoration to take place, for the return from ex the exile to take place, the nation of Israel must repent. We're going to look at this here in just a minute. The reason why Jesus is being baptized is because Jesus is embodying the story of Israel as the true Israel. And that's what happens in the temptations and trial scenes also. When Jesus goes off into the wilderness, he's being tempted by the devil in the wilderness with the same temptations, basically, that Israel was facing. The difference is, as I mentioned a minute ago, that Israel succumbed to those temptations and Jesus doesn't. He succeeds where Israel fails. Or, I mean, you can even say he succeeds where Adam failed. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, it's more of this Israel story, at least with, with Jesus. And what you'll notice is that in each of Jesus' responses to the devil, right? People always have Jesus quotes scripture. That's how he responds to the devil. And so you should quote scripture and respond to the devil. Well, okay, that, that's cool. What have you? What Jesus is doing, actually, is he's quoting Deuteronomy. His quotes from his three quotes are from Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, uh, 16, and Deuteronomy 6, 13. And in each case, the text is indicating what Israel was supposed to do and didn't do. So Jesus is saying, well, it is written, right? It's like, yeah, and you didn't do it, but I'm doing it. What Jesus is doing is he's actually succeeding where Israel failed. And the point then is, is we have no need to fear because Jesus was faithful. And as a result, the kingdom of God has been established in and through Jesus. Maybe the best way to illustrate this is by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 30. I've said before, and maybe it's a little bit of a hyperbole, but Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and 30 are probably the four most significant chapters in the Old Testament. And the reason for saying that is twofold. One is because those chapters in Deuteronomy are extremely important for much of the Old Testament, Isaiah, you know, even the writings of Kings and Chronicles. The prophetic world is looking back to those four chapters in Deuteronomy saying, uh, did you do the law or did you not do the law? Because if you did it, God says, this is what's going to happen. And if you didn't do it, God says, this is what's going to happen. And so what the prophets are doing is saying, hey, guys, the reason why Assyria is coming in to destroy you is because Deuteronomy says, if you do this, God's going to bring Assyria in to destroy you. Guess what? The reason why the Babylonians are coming in to destroy you is because Deuteronomy said, if you don't do this, the Babylonians... Deuteronomy doesn't say that the Assyrians or Babylonians are going to come in, but Deuteronomy does say a foreign enemy will come in and conquer you. Now, at the end of those four chapters, then lies Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is really significant for understanding the New Testament, especially the book of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, but really kind of all of it. So let me, let me read it. At the end of Deuteronomy 29, it says, God's going to, I know you're not going to obey and God's going to send you away. He's going to send you into a foreign land but foreign people and be foreign oppressors. And then here's what it says. Chapter 30, verse one. So it will come about when all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse, which is really more curses than anything else, mm -hmm. which I have set before you and you call them to mind or you, you become aware of them. It says in all the nations where the Lord God has banished you. So you're in those foreign nations and you remember the book of Deuteronomy and what it said. And you return. And that's the new American standard. You could translate this here as, and you repent. Hmm. 
you return to the Lord your God and you obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to all that I commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord God has scattered you. If you're outcasts or at the end of the earth, from there, the Lord your God will gather you. From there, he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And that's obviously Genesis language. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. The point of this is, when you're in those foreign lands and then you repent, you can come back to the land. So if Jesus is calling the Israelites to come back to the land that God's going to bring about his promised kingdom, and they're going to be restored to the land. And remember, they're already in the land, but they actually haven't had the restoration yet. Well, some of them are in the land, but the restoration hasn't happened yet. Then what do they have to do? They have to repent. And this is kind of the key theme of the gospel stories of the kingdom of God now is coming and repentance is all you got to do. And so Jesus, he's not being baptized as a model for us. No, he's being baptized because he's repenting for the nations, just like Daniel repented for the people of Israel. I think you mentioned that, mentioned that last week. Yeah. And so since we do see a biblical record of this happening in Daniel nine, Ezra nine, Nehemiah nine, like that's how I always remember those nines are the, are the, yeah. yeah. Like, okay, well the people did it and maybe in our Western individualistic mindsets like well they did the thing they they checked off the list they repented so god is obligated to do it but that's the point is they did it and whether it was daniel doing it himself or a group of people in ezra and nehemiah doing it it's like nope this isn't what i'm looking for yet there was something about it that was not i don't want to say not legit but that's just that's not what god was looking for and this is where it's significant when you see something like in a mark chapter one uh, when Jesus first comes on the scene and he says, the time is fulfilled. Right. What time? Oh, that this time, that yeah. thing that had not been acknowledged yet as being accepted on God's behalf. Yeah. It's accepted now. It's fulfilled now in Jesus. And he's the one who's his repentance is the one that I'm, I'm accepting. Right. Bear this in mind. It's not just the fact that God called Israel for Israel's sake. That's not what's happening. God called Israel for his sake. Mm-hmm to be his people so that God could be made known. That's the point we made at the end of last week could be made known to the nations through them. The problem is, is they continuously failed. The reason why the time is fulfilled in Jesus is because he is the consummate Israel because he was the faithful one. He did in the wilderness, what Israel didn't do in the wilderness. And he continued to do so. Namely, he was a light in the nations. And now through Jesus, the fulfillment comes. So it couldn't be at any other point in time that the ultimate fulfillment, because even if they're just repenting, okay, you're repenting for your sins, but you're just going to go off and sin again. Mm-hmm. And that's what Deuteronomy 30 is going to say is I'm going to circumcise your hearts. And obviously we'll get to the book of Romans later, but that's Romans too. Paul's answer is, mm-hmm. ah, the Holy Spirit has circumcised your hearts. And now as God's people, we can be faithful to the law, even though we still sometimes, and maybe more than others, are not always faithful, but nonetheless, it's the fulfillment coming in and through Jesus. Which once again is pulling to the Old Testament. That's literally Jeremiah 31. That's yes. Ezekiel 36. So yeah, very good. Okay. So a second thing outside of baptism of Jesus to look at is what's going on with the with the New Testament writers when they, they're applying Old Testament stuff to Jesus, like the prophets or things like a Nazarene or things that aren't necessarily found in the Old Testament. Yeah. So this is central for understanding the Gospels, understanding the New Testament, because Paul's going to do this, the book of Revelation is going to do this. So what Vinny's referring to there is, we mentioned last week that the first two chapters begin with five fulfillment passages. The virgin shall be with child. You know, oh, guess what, Joseph? She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit because this is to fulfill what Isaiah 7.14 says. And we're going to look at Isaiah 7.14 in just a second. And then it goes on to say, at the end of this, that they returned to Nazareth. And the reason, this is at the end of chapter two now, it says in verse 22, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go, this is referring to Joseph, and being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee and came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Mm-hmm. Now, there's something funny going on here. And our first indication is that it's the prophets that say this. In other words, it's not the prophet Isaiah, which is Isaiah 7, 14. He's not quoting Hosea 11, 11 verse 1. 
he's quoting the prophets. Like, which one? And the answer is like, none of them. But at the same time, all of them. All of them, yeah. And the reason why that is, is because there's no passage in the Old Testament anywhere, just none, you can't find it, that says he should be called a Nazarene. It's like, uh, okay, that's kind of strange. Now, maybe the best way to explain what's happening here actually is to go to the Isaiah 714 passage, because it says in Matthew 1, don't worry about this, Joseph, it's okay, because the virgin shall be with child. Isaiah 714 even says this, oh, we all know about this virgin birth. Well, if you talk to a modern day Jewish person, or an ancient Jewish person, but if you talk to an ancient Jewish person, I want to find you're, out how you did that. But yeah, no, you're no, probably no. pretty ancient too. Yeah, yeah. That's, okay. Uh, <laughs> something's going on. Uh, Saul tried that. I wouldn't recommend it, by the way, right? Uh, nonetheless, if you talk to a, to a Jewish person, you're going to go, oh, well, the virgin birth, incredible proof for Jesus's divinity and for Jesus being the Messiah. They're going to, they're going to say, there's no virgin birth in the Old Testament. No, no messianic virgin birth in the Old Testament. Like, oh, of course there is. Isaiah 714. Here's what's happening in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, this is back with the Assyrians. So we're now in the 8th century BC. So 740 BC, 720 BC, 721 is when the Assyrians come in and conquer. What was happening now actually is the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms were making a divide between the two. So Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and Ahaz, the king of Judah, was worried because his northern rival was partnering up with Syria. And the two of them, Syria and Israel, were, he, he feared were going to come and conquer Judah. So Ahaz has this brilliant idea. Ahaz says, I'm going to go call Assyria to come and help me. So you get an ally with Syria. I'll get an ally with Assyria. And then let's go ahead and go to war. Well, we all know what's going to happen when that war. Assyria is bigger than all of them. And it's going to just wipe out Syria and Israel. And Ahaz is going to be all, this, all the wiser. Now, Isaiah comes into the story. Isaiah worked for the king as a consultant saying, hey, let me kind of give you some wisdom here, right? One of his so he's, advisors. He's, that, he's that's the concierge in uh, Godfather. Yeah. He's Tom Hagen to, okay. to Vito Corleone. Well, we won't go there, but nonetheless, <laughs> you Italian. I've never seen the Godfather. I just know. You haven't seen it? Okay, yeah, it's oh, no, I would never watch such a vile movie. It's not, yeah, well, you root for the Raiders. <laughs> Okay, so I had to say that. Sorry. Anyways. All right. Okay, here we go. Um, they, they got like the sword going through their head. It's a, the mascots. Like, just hello. It's, it's the sword of the spirit. Come on. Yeah. Well, maybe spirit. not. So, anyways, <laughs> what spirit is the question yeah. right now, right? So, yeah. yeah, it might be the sword of the spirit. I'm just not sure it's, it's a good spirit. So, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, right, anyways, moving right along. Yes. Isaiah comes along as a counselor and advisor to the king and says, that's not a good idea because when you invite Assyria to come in and help you out, they're going to come and help you out and they're going to stay. And then you're going to owe them and they're going to collect a lot of money from you for the, it's not going to come cheap. So Isaiah says, look, God's going to protect you. So Isaiah seven, verse one says, it came out in those days of Ahaz, the son of Dotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of, of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, that's Damascus, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel. So that's the Northern kingdom and Damascus or Syria. Uh, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported the house of David saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, Ephraim is Samaria up in the north, uh, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz. Let me skip on down verse four and say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear. Don't be faint hearted because the two stubs of smoldering, smoldering firebrands, that's Damascus and Israel are not going to be successful. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Verse seven, thus says the Lord God, it will not stand. They're out, they're alliance. It won't work. It's going to be okay. Just trust me. The Lord said to Ahaz, verse 10 now, ask me for a sign. If you don't believe my words, ask me for a sign. I'll do it to prove to you that I'm telling you the truth, that you don't have to worry about these two kings. Now, the problem was, was Ahaz didn't want to listen to God. He would rather call in the Assyrian Empire, who was going to ask for tributes and going to ask for taxes, and it was going to be a major mess. But in his mind, this was a better plan. God's like, ask the Lord for a sign. Now, so many Christians look at this and go, you know, Ahaz was this wise king because he said, mm -hmm. no, Lord, I don't want a sign from you because we're not supposed to demand signs from the Lord. He's not demanding a sign from the Lord. The Lord's offering up a sign. I'll do it. I promise you. And Ahaz says, verse 12, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And then he said, now listen, O house of David. 
Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you'll try the patience of my God as well? The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He'll eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. In other words, A, the sign that God was promising to give, he was going to give to Ahaz, and Ahaz was going to see it. In fact, there's actually a time limit on it. This child will be born before the two kings you dread, their land will be forsaken. Hmm. And this can't be fulfilled 800 years later, 700 years later in Jesus as at least the initial fulfillment was the prophecy was about something that was going to happen in Ahaz's day and he needed to know about it. And most scholars, most uh, Old Testament scholars in the book of Isaiah will say the fulfillment of this passage is chapter eight. It's Isaiah's son. Not everyone's agreed on that, but Isaiah has a son in chapter eight and that's the fulfillment of it. So now the question becomes, well, wait a minute, if that's what's happening, how can we go to the book of Isaiah and say, oh, it's about Jesus. Now, what a Jewish scholar will say actually is that the word for virgin in this passage actually means a young girl. Mm-hmm. It, she might not even be a virgin. She's just a young girl. What's interesting about that actually is that the Greek translations of Isaiah, which come along a couple hundred years before Jesus, they actually change the Greek word from the Hebrew. They translate it a certain way. There's two words that they could use. One that would say a young, a young maiden and one that would say a virgin. And they chose the word for virgin. So Matthew's reading the Greek text and saying, mm. ah, the virgin shall have a child. And that's what happened here. Mary was a virgin. She had a child fulfilled in Jesus. And the question is like, well, well, how can he do that? And the answer is because Jesus says the whole story is about me. Yeah, true. This was fulfilled in Ahaz's day as assigned to Ahaz. But the larger, bigger picture, it was always pointing to me. Okay, let, let me stop there and see if you have any comments or thoughts on that. Well, I just wanted to understand one thing. So you said, just from an ethical standpoint, backing the story up. Yeah. You don't in, invite other nations into the king's court because they're going to want something. They're, yeah. they're going to they're want to get involved. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, one famous person said uh, about having favors done. It's like someday and that day may never come. I, I will call upon you to do a service for me. But until that day, accept this gift as a gift on the, on the day of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. I thought we were doing a biblical podcast. <laughs> Lo and behold, Vinny breaks out with. I, I break out the Godfather. Cause I, yeah. I, I include you. The Godfather. I include this Tom Hagen reference. With the gun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Very good. Okay. I hope I'm everyone sorry. appreciates that. Yeah. So especially okay. the, the voice that you did there at the end. <laughs> your, your voice acting classes are really starting to work. <laughs> They're paying off there. Yeah. Get my money's worth. Uh, seriously though, from a, a theological standpoint though, cause you're bringing up stuff right now. And if, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to leave it somewhere. No. Yeah. It's not software, where, yeah. where, where someone's like, okay, is Rob then saying that like there wasn't a virgin birth predicted? And, and like, if I'm a confessional person and I'm familiar with the creeds, I'm saying, wait a minute, like born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate. Like these are things that are a heart of Christian orthodoxy now, regardless of your Roman Catholic Orthodox or Protestant. Like wh- what are you, what are you saying then from a historical and theological standpoint on this topic? Yeah, very good. What I'm saying actually is that the biblical author, now here's, the, here's something to think about the gospel of Matthew as far as we can tell, was perhaps written to, to a Jewish audience. We, we mentioned on our Gospel of Mark episodes that the Gospels themselves seemed to have a whole a universal audience in mind. They were known that they were going to send these out throughout the Roman world. At the same time, Mark seems to have more of a Roman mindset. That's, that's his original audience. And that's who he's writing for. Luke is certainly writing to a man named Theophilus who's paying the bill. And we'll talk about that when we get to the Gospel of Luke. Matthew seems to have a Jewish audience in mind, even though he knows it's going to go out to the larger Roman world. And if Matthew were doing something funny with the Jewish scriptures that was simply not permitted, he would have been called out immediately. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's not what Isaiah says. Instead, they're like, hey, good job. And the reason why we say that, actually, and the reason why we know this really well now is because about 70 or so years ago, a little more than 70 years ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. 
And then 50 years ago, the translations of the Dead Sea Scrolls started to come out. And what we find out and what we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they were doing the exact same thing. Hmm. They were taking their current events and reading back into the story and making it fit the story. Okay, it's about us. And here's how we know it's about us. Matthew's simply saying, look, Jesus is legit. His resurrection tells us he really is the Messiah. We know he was born of a virgin through Mary. And oh, look, Isaiah 7, 14 says it. He was doing an interpretive practice that we, I understand, feel uncomfortable about. Because we're like, yeah, I think grammatical, historical exegesis is the way Mm -hmm. we were raised. And that means we look at the grammar, we look at the history, we look at the context, we look at everything that's going on. What was the author trying to say? And that's the parameters of our interpretation. And Isaiah was not prophesying the virgin birth of a Messiah. He mm. may not have even been prophesying about a virgin birth. It may have just been a young girl who may already have been married with other kids. But the virgin part comes in before the time of Matthew in the, in the, Dead, in the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Matthew's going, okay, hey, I'm going to take the Greek translation because that works really well and say, this was fulfilled by Jesus. And the reason why it's okay to do that is because A, the way they did translation in those days, or the way they did interpretation in those days, and B, that's exactly what Jesus says to do. And we're going to look at that when we get to the gospel of Luke. Jesus is saying the whole scriptures were about me. John chapter five, I think you mentioned this one before, mm-hmm. before we got on there. But in John chapter five, Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you believe me because Moses wrote about me. So Jesus is telling us to do this with the scriptures. Let's look at another example here if, you, if we can. Hosea chapter 11, verse one mm-hmm. is, all, is one of these five fulfillment passages. And what's intriguing about that actually, and this is actually a little bit controversial. So I'll mention kind of both sides on it. And I won't simply say, you know, what side I, what side I tend to take. In Matthew chapter two, the Jesus story was the living out the story of recapitulating the story of, of Israel. So Abraham comes from the North, goes to the South. Joseph and Mary come from the North. They go to the South. Eventually the baby's born. Herod goes to kill all the kids. Pharaoh goes to kill all the kids. Jesus goes off into Egypt. Israelites went off into Egypt. Israelites come out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Jesus comes out of Egypt and is baptized in the Jordan River. Jesus goes up on a mountainside. Moses goes up on a mountainside. That's the first five chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. In the first two chapters, Matthew takes the events of the birth of Jesus and the escape into Egypt and then the coming back from Egypt and says five times this was to fulfill a scripture. Well, in Matthew chapter 2, it says, verse 13, when they departed, this is Jesus and his family escape, uh, leave, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and a dream to Joseph saying, arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to destroy him, verse 14. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went by night to, and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod. And that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now the problem there is two, there's two things here going on. One is, wait a minute. Out of Egypt, I called my son is a reference to the Israelites coming out of Egypt into the Sinai. But Matthew seems to be quoting this by saying he's leaving Israel and going to Egypt, which makes Israel Egypt mm-hmm. because Pharaoh's Herod. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Herod's Pharaoh. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> is Matthew taking, they left Egypt and went to the wilderness and saying he left Israel and went to Egypt. Not all scholars agree with that. And you can obviously see why they don't all agree with that because some yeah. are just not going to be comfortable with that interpretation. Yeah. Now, the second problem that, that is this, is the passage being cited out of Egypt that I call my son is Hosea chapter 11, verse one. If you go to the book of Hosea now, the first thing that you're going to notice is Isaiah, is Hosea chapter 11, verse one is not even a prophecy. Mm-mm. It says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. And they kept sacrificing to their Baals and burning incense in their faith. Yet it's I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms. God is reminiscing about his acts amongst the Israelite people to say, this is how how good I've been to them. In other words, it's historically looking backwards. It's not prophetically looking forward. Hosea is not predicting that they're going to leave Egypt. Hosea is written long after they've already left Egypt. So Matthew's not even quoting a prophecy here. Mm -hmm. But the significance is, out of Egypt that I call my son, 
and Jesus left Egypt and Jesus is the son of God fulfilled in Jesus. And the point of that actually is if the scriptures are all about Jesus, then it's true because Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And that's what the New Testament writers are doing. Does that make sense a little bit? Yep. Yep. Okay. So I've heard this idea in theology that with prophecy, there could be double fulfillments. Like, a, oh, it's like, oh, well, this, this meant once here, but then we still have to wait for this far off thing that is going to happen when Ukraine and Russia evade whoever, you know, insert any, any, you know, popular political thing that's happening. Is there, a, is that a thing? Double fulfillment? That's not what's happening here. Uh, number one. And number two, I'd say, no, there's not double fulfillment. What is used for double fulfillment oftentimes is people saying, okay, there's going to be a third temple built in Jerusalem, and that'll be a sign of the end times. And then we turn around and go, uh, guys, uh, Jesus himself said he was the fulfillment of the temple. Yeah, well, double fulfillment. It was done, it was fulfilled by Jesus, and it'll be fulfilled in the end times by Israel. Like, no, 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 no. The prophecies were all pointing to Jesus. Now, you could say through Jesus, they were also pointing to the people of God. For example, we're also called the temple of God. So the prophecies of Jesus as being the temple are fulfilled by Jesus and the church, but it's not a literal building anyways. Mm -hmm. So the idea of double fulfillment is no, the prophecies were, were pointing us to Jesus. Now, if you want to say, well, this prophecy had the virgin shall be with child referred to, referred to something in Ahaz's time, and it was also fulfilled by Jesus. Well, yeah, that's not double fulfillment though. That's simply saying that the, that the long-term focus of this text actually is simply Jesus. But the idea of double fulfillment is that it's pointing to something in the future that's going to happen and the Russians are going to do this and da 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 We're like, no, that's already happened. Well, yeah, but double fulfillment. So I would say, no, I would not agree with double, the idea of double and, fulfillment. And that just becomes so arbitrary anyway, because then yeah. you could just ascribe double then, fulfillment to anything you want. The biblical writers were doing that, but they were doing that with Jesus. Mm -hmm. they, they were taking current events in the life of Jesus and going, oh, wow, I guess I can get a virgin passage out of this. And that's exactly what Mary, okay, that, that fits. Oh, he went to Egypt. Okay, well, out of Egypt did I call my son. They're reading the Jesus story back in the Old Testament. They're not reading current events of mm -hmm. Israel or Russia or whatever else it might be back in the, the New Testament or the Old Testament. Okay. Right, now, let me, let me add something to this a little bit because I can think that some people might still be a little bit comfortable with this because it, it seems like the biblical writers are playing funny with the scriptures. And my two points would be, number one, they're playing funny with the scriptures. Yeah, that's probably true, but it's through Jesus. And was Jesus himself said, they're all about me. Go dig and mine the scriptures to find me in the story. And, and we're not finding Jesus in, in isolated passages. It's the whole story is about me. Uh, and the second thing actually is that, and just to reiterate, is that this is what was a common practice in the Jewish world at the time. But let me kind of comfort us a little bit further. We read Ezekiel 37 last week, which is this prophecy about, I will be their God and they'll be my people. It's Leviticus 26, which is the Garden of Eden being fulfilled. And Ezekiel says, okay, I know that it didn't happen like Leviticus said it was going to happen because, well, you weren't faithful, you were unfaithful, and God sent you in exile. But God hasn't forgotten his promises. He's still going to fulfill it. And Ezekiel says it this way. He says, and my servant David, Ezekiel 37, verse 24, my servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances. And they'll keep my statutes and observe them. Now, let me stop. Because I think all Christians are going to go, that was Jesus. But it doesn't say Jesus. It doesn't even say the Messiah. It says David. But Ezekiel's written after David. So either Ezekiel's saying David's going to be reincarnated, which there's no indication that the Israelites believe that such a thing. Mm -hmm. Or that the Messiah is going to be another David. But if you're a literalist and you don't mm -hmm. like what we just did with Hosea 11 verse one or with Isaiah 7, 14, because the literalist just can't allow that. The answer is, well, if you're a literalist, then the prophecy is about David, not about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the answer is Jesus is the Davidic king. He's also the high priest of Israel. He's also the prophet of the Old Testament. So he's the prophet, priest and king. So mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense a little bit more. Yeah. Let me give you another example, too. And that's this. In the book of Acts, there's an Ethiopian eunuch and he's writing back from Jerusalem and he's reading the Old Testament. And Philip is told by God, hey, go run alongside that chariot and help that guy out. So Philip comes, runs alongside the chariot and he's like, hey, do you know what you're reading? And the guy's like, well, how can I? Unless someone explains it to me. Mm -hmm. And he's reading Isaiah 53. 
And the Ethiopian says, is the guy talking about himself or about someone else? Hmm. Now, again, if you're a Jewish person today, Isaiah 53 is the most famous prophecy. He was pierced for our transgressions, mm-hmm. he was crushed mm-hmm. for our iniquities. It's about the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus is the servant that Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 is talking about. That's just standard Christian interpretation. The most widely interpreted prophecy today about Jesus is Isaiah 53. But if you read Isaiah 53 carefully, Mm -hmm. and if you talk to a modern Israelite, it's not about a servant individual. It's about Israel Mm -hmm. being embodied as one person. Now, this one person is not an individual person. He's a corporate entity, Israel. And we know that because Isaiah 42, which is talking about the servant, says, you are Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. There you go. The servant is Israel. The reality then is it's not talking about an individual, but the Mm -hmm. Ethiopian says, is it about himself or about somebody else? Mm. And Philip goes, it's about somebody else. Mm. Isaiah wasn't talking about himself. It's about Jesus. And shortly thereafter, hey, here's a good place to get baptized. He interprets the prophecy about the suffering servant in light of Jesus. He tells the Ethiopian about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the Mm. the guy's great. How can I get baptized? So the reality is, is we're actually doing it too, because Acts was doing it. Mm-hmm. And what were they doing? They were taking the entirety of the Old Testament story and applying them to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let me give you um, uh, an anecdote. Also, I've used this a few times when I was preaching that I think it's uh, Spurgeon. I think this comes from, I'm not certain exactly who it was, but I think it's Spurgeon back in the 1800s in England and one of the great preachers of uh, Christian history. He's the prince of pe- preachers. Actually. He's the prince of preachers. That's right. Uh, he had a young man who was training for ministry and he says, hey, I'm going to let you preach this weekend. So the guy preached in the services and then the following week, Spurgeon met with him because that's what a good mentor does, by the way, and says, hey, let's talk about your sermon. And Spurgeon says, you know, there's one thing I, I know. It was a great sermon. He's preaching from Jeremiah, I believe it was. It was a really good sermon. He says, but you know, I got one criticism. You didn't mention Jesus once. And this young uh, seminary student says, well, I'm sorry to tell you, Mr. Spurgeon, but Jesus isn't in Jeremiah. And Spurgeon replies, son, if you can't find Jesus in Jeremiah, you can't preach in my church. Mm. All right. So let's, let's go back to John the Baptist and not the baptism of Jesus, because we talked about that already, but he's calling the people to repent. And, you know, we, we see that, but repentance is still important. Uh, What's the significance of that? Why was John calling what is with this call to repent? Yeah. So one, of course, we would tie it to Deuteronomy 30. And that is, if you want, it's the sins of the people that led you into exile in order to be restored from exile, you must repent. And that actually has significant questions for modern day Israel Zionism discussions. Oh, they, they've come back to the land. It's fulfillment of prophecy. Mm-hmm. And that's as well. I, it says in order to come back to the land, you have to repent first. Mm-hmm. But the significance for understanding this in the New Testament then becomes this. The boundary demarkers for defining who is an Israelite and who's not an Israelite was circumcision. You had to be circumcised, the males at least. Had to follow the food laws. That distinguishes between Jews and Gentiles. Only Jews eat these foods and Gentiles eat those foods also. And we don't eat those ones. Not that only Jews eat these foods, but that only Gentiles eat these foods and Jews Mm -hmm. don't eat those Mm -hmm. ones, right? We have certain foods that we don't eat. And then, of course, Sabbath keeping. And Sabbath mm-hmm. keeping doesn't mean just keeping the Sabbath. It means keeping all, all, the, all, festivals. Of those, yeah. all the festivals. These are boundaries. These are identity markers. This, if you go to modern-day New York City, you know, you, you know when you're in the Puerto Rican side of town and you know when you're in the Italian side of town you know, and you know when you're in Chinatown because they dress a certain way and they eat certain foods and they celebrate certain holidays. Same thing. The Jews had these boundary markers. And Jesus comes along and says, look, I'm going to redefine family as my mother and my brother and my sisters are do, those who do the will of my father who is in heaven. And I'm going to make entrance into the kingdom, not these exclusive boundary markers, but repentance. And the beauty of repentance is that it's open to anyone who wants to come in. So if the Pharisees want to say, well, sorry, you tax collectors have burnt that bridge. You're not allowed in. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, if you want to repent, I don't care if you're a tax collector. Now understand what a tax collector was. A tax collector would be like an indigenous Indian working for the United States government collecting Mm. taxes. Mm -hmm. Like, no, you're not in this tribe any longer. 
an Israelite working for Rome, collecting taxes for Rome, the occupier and oppressor of our people who crucified my brother yesterday. No, you're out. And Jesus says, if you repent, you're in. Mm-hmm. I like looking at the story of Matthew. It says, you know, Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew jumps out of the tax collector's booth and follows him. Mm-hmm. And I maybe reading the story a little bit, I think maybe, or I wonder if what's happening actually is Matthew sees Jesus character walking around Capernaum and going, oh man, I think that guy really is the Messiah, but it's too late for me. I've already given in and gone to work for Rome and there's, there's no hope for me any longer. I blew it. So that when Jesus finally walks by the, his booth and says, hey, follow me. Oh, I didn't, I didn't think I had a chance at this. Awesome, I'm in. So people that were excluded by the pharisaical and, and leadership designations of boundary markers, who's in, who's out, the prostitutes, et cetera, Jesus says, no, you can come in too as long as you repent. But even more significantly, as we get to the rest of the New Testament, Gentiles, non-Jews, can become part of the kingdom of God and the family of God's people, part of the people of God, simply by repenting. And it doesn't matter who you are. And that's why John the Baptist in Luke's gospel specifically says, hey, don't say we have Abraham as our father. This is John the Baptist, like, you're brood of vipers. You're like, what? And, and notice the interview that we did with Jay Spotters, remember? Brood of vipers means you're sons of serpents, mm-hmm. right? You're the children of the devil. Remember in the book of Genesis, it's the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Like, no, our father's Abraham. We're clearly the seed of the woman. No, you're sons. You're a brood of vipers. And the answer is you also need to repent to be included in this. So just because you have this ancestry and you follow the boundary markers doesn't make you in the kingdom. It's, it's the heart and the transformation of the heart and genuine repentance. So it's good news and great news and the gospel's good news because anyone can come in. It doesn't matter if you have an education or not. It doesn't matter if you have nice clothes that you can wear to church or you don't have nice clothes. that you can, You're welcome in. It, it doesn't matter what you make a lot of money or you don't make a lot of money. It doesn't matter if you're white or if you're colored. It doesn't matter if you speak English or French or Spanish or any other language. All you must do to enter the kingdom of God is repent. And repent is, of course, like acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord and submitting to him as Lord of life. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is some people don't think they need to repent. And that's the people that Jesus butts heads with the most. You guys think you are the, the caretakers of the scriptures for the sake of the people? And you know Matthew 23 says, you're, you're making them twice as, son, twice as much a sons of hell as you are. Sons of hell? Yeah. Or John 8, your father's the devil. Oh, we're not illegitimate children. No, you're not illegitimate children. Your son's the devil. So you can see that this presents the, the battleground for Jesus and the religious leaders. Yeah. And this is something we're going to definitely, it's going to be a major, major part of post gospel uh, yeah. episodes that we do, but this is going to be see, seeing something that we're going to see pop up in, you know, midway through the book of Acts, yeah. uh, Acts chapter 10, you know, 15, those sorts of things. Many of Paul's letters, especially something like Galatians, where the yeah. question becomes basically, how Jewish does a Gentile need to be in order yeah. to follow the Jewish Messiah? And and, yeah. and and specifically like, okay, what boundary markers do they need to follow? What do they need to do? And this is the point that Paul goes over again and again, where it's like, oh, it's this faith is, is what makes someone in Christ. And guess what? Christ is the offspring of Abraham. Yeah. And so that's like, to your point, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile or male or female or slave nor free. If you're in him, uh, you get the, uh, the benefits of the heirs that the, the real offspring got. That's right. And this becomes the, as you said, this becomes the, the leading questions at the entire of the New Testament. And another thing to add to that too also will be that the Christians did not perceive of themselves as Christians, i.e. as distinct from the Jews. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The reason why this becomes a contentious issue is because the early Christian church thought they were the true Jewish people. They were the true people of, they were the true Israelites. Mm-hmm. The break or what's called the parting of the ways probably doesn't happen until the second century. It yeah. is a formal break. So what would we say that, what is biblical repentance then? Yeah. Like how do we, how do we yeah. define that? That's how does that question. play out? And then like, you know, even in the life of Gentiles, like yourself and me, uh, us hey, Italians, you me a Gentile? Well, you are, we are Italian. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so w- what is biblical repentance then? Repentance, I think looking at this, we're in the modern church, right? It becomes this. I repented when I went to youth camp when I was, you know, in eighth grade or whatever, and therefore I'm saved. And I, I said live a prayer. Like hell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can live like hell from, mm-hmm. uh, from then on. It becomes a crutch. Repentance 
and genuine repentance is a transformation of life. I know it's, it's a transformation of life saying Jesus is Lord and I'm not. And if a person believes that and confesses that, then they live in accordance with that. And of course we struggle because we still live in the flesh, but we're endowed with the spirit. But genuine repentance is I'm not Lord, but I've lived as if I were. I'm not Lord because I've lived as though my money or my, or sex or power or greed, or I've lied. I've done all these things because I've tried to be Lord of my life all by myself. And now I recognize that Jesus is actually the Lord. I, I think that's the, the essence of biblical repentance. And of course, it, it's a life that becomes characterized by it from then on, where I continuously grow in that relationship of him as Lord. And I devolve of that relationship of I am Lord. Would you add something to that? Or, or how, how would you express that in your classes? I, I think that's a better way of saying it because it's so different than the way it's been popularized in Americanism, mm -hmm. which is where I'm sorry for not hitting the mark or which are like, okay, that could be it as well. But we, we relegate it to just that. Yeah. It's that idea of it's change of life, right? It's, it's literally changing a mindset. It's changing how you do something. All right. Well, we're plowing through this thing. We've gone four yeah. whole chapters. Sermon on the Mount. Good place to stop. Let, let's not go up that mountain yet. Let's let's save some energy. You see what let's I did? Let's not there? climb that hill. Let's not climb that hill. <laughs> Enough bad jokes for today. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, cool. Let, we'll we'll come back next time and we'll uh, tackle the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe yeah. maybe a few of the most important chapters in the Bible. I, how, right. how do you pick it a most important? But like yeah. that would be one that would be like that's a an acceptable one to say are some yeah. of the most important. So what I do is I say, hey, every, whenever I'm, I'm preaching, I'm like, this is the most important chapter or ch set of chapters in the scriptures. And then I just say the same thing like three, three weeks later about another set. Yeah. And, okay. and like I didn't even say it three weeks ago. Right. It's all true. It's like this is the most important verse in the Bible until I tell you another one is Okay. next week. Cool. Hey, I have an idea. Why don't we, uh, this weekend we could like live stream the Godfather together. Like we'll push play at the same time on our, it's like, we're watching it together. We'll have zoom open. Hope everyone's enjoying this. We're enjoying it. <laughs> I'm having fun. So yeah. And, it's a different... and you should have heard all the parts that we cut out of the final edition. Right? Yeah. Cause <laughs> exactly. All right. Everyone have a great week. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Thank you. And by the way, we're not going to see anybody video. It's an audio I, podcast. I actually see everyone. I'm pretty creepy. Like oh, that. I didn't... wow. I... My bad. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.